I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Today we're joined by Bob Hunter, who can write a great story and tell one too. He's been my friend and made me laugh since the late 80s, and he covered sports for the Columbus Dispatch for 41 years. He's also written nine books, the latest, a collection of his columns, called Players, Teams, and Stadium Ghost, Bob Hunter on Sports. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. How you doing? Doing great. Doing great. And usually, Bob, when, when it's you and I talking, that means the lights have come up, the music stopped, and the bartender's saying, go home. Thankfully, today we have listeners, and we appreciate them. What do you say we buy them around? <laughs> I, think, I think that may have happened once or twice. I think we may have... <laughs> <laughs> we may have been shooed out of the bar once or twice. Hey, a lot of games, a lot of nights, a lot of years together. You're retired now. You retired in 2016. Uh, and that's that's true, and I'm happily retired. Well, you still write books, right? I mean, you're an author, oh, so. Yeah. No, I still write. I love to write, so that, that will not, that won't end. We, uh, I was thinking about it. We, we met back in the late 80s, back in the Stone Age. You were covering the Reds, and I had just started at the Cincinnati Post, so... My assumption is that we met at Riverfront Stadium, right? I'm sure we did. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, we could have been a Bengals game, though. I mean, I covered a lot. I covered Bengals games, too, back in those days. But probably the Reds. I covered the Reds from, uh, I don't know, 83 to 93 or something like that. And I'm sure that that would have been when it was. It was there every day. So I'm sure I know yeah. you were there a lot. So, yeah. So we just became quick friends early on. And then I joined the dispatch, Columbus Dispatch, and... 97, and we worked together for 20 years until you retired and left me behind, you know. <laughs> there was a day back, I think in the early 80s, where you were with Bobby Knight having pizza at Plank's Pizza in Columbus. Is that right? Actually, it was a, it was a lunch, and my, uh, my boss, Dick Otte, had covered Knight at Ohio State during his basketball days and was very close to him. And yeah, because he played there. People forget yeah, that. Yeah, yeah he, he played, played the there. Bombers. And actually, um, Adi claims to have talked Knight out of quitting the team a couple times, like on the road. <laughs> I mean, Knight was Knight was a, you know, a problem child even then, I guess. But Yeah, Fred um, Taylor, the coach, called him the brat from Orville. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in the office. Adi says, me and Knight are going to go to – planks for lunch do you want to go I said, well yeah of course so we went we were sitting in planks as we're finishing up the conversation knight said you know i'd like to go up and see the old man talking about woody hayes and sounds like a good idea to me bob and i you know and and so Adi says to me well you know you know hunter do you have you know you have time to do that to go with us and it was like oh yeah yeah i'm not missing that <laughs> so so we went so we went Went up to Woody's office, which was in the old North facility up there, a little... At Ohio State. Little room, yeah. A little concrete block room. We went in there, knocked on the door. Woody was taking a nap. Um, <laughs> you know, he was well, he was thrilled to see Knight. You know, practice wasn't for, you know, two or two or three hours or something. He was really thrilled to see Knight. So we go in so there. So wait a minute. Woody, Woody was still coaching at the time? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this is late. This is 77 this is late, or 78. Yeah, this is 77, yeah. 78. Okay. And he's coaching... And uh, uh, 
So we, we go in there and we sit down in there and it's just Oddie, me, Knight, and Woody. And it's amazing. we're in there for maybe an hour and they're talking and they're going on and Woody is telling military stories. Woody gets on yeah. his kick and he's, he's on this military kick and he's talking. It's about time for us to leave. And he starts into this story about cracking the German code. During World War II, where he, he served in World War II. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and so he's, he's given this, he's in this one all over the place with his story. And trying to think of what, you know, where is this going? What is this? And he gets to the end of this story and he says, and I wish I could remember the exact, you know, sentence, but it was something like, and do you know who the brother-in-law of the guy who cracked the German code in World War II was? Which I thought was like, what? You know, like this is like the most, you know, this is so far out there. And I'm like, I'm a history minor in college. I mean, I love history. I write books about history. But and Knight was a huge Knight was a huge history right. guy too, so, right? Yeah, and they so called him the general. That, and then, you know, we all kind of go, oh no, you know. And then Woody says something like, John Smith. And then we all go, oh, like, you know, like you're like you're like that was, you know, Woody just thought this was like the most amazing thing in the world. I'd never heard of whoever it was. And so, okay, well, thanks, Coach. Good to see you. And we walked out the door and we started down the hall. And Knight says, I knew the answer, but I don't want to disappoint the old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, let's back up here a second. You're, we don't want to leave Woody Hayes right, behind because right. you, you spent four years in your hometown of Hamilton, Ohio, working for the Journal News. And then you went over to the Columbus Dispatch in 1975. A couple of years later, you start covering Ohio State football, which means you're with Woody Hayes pretty much every day. Now, Woody has been long gone now, and he's become this mythical figure. What was it like dealing with Woody Hayes every day? And it really was every day. I mean, this was the, this was the difference between then and now. I was a beat guy on the football team, so I went to practice every day. And usually the guy, whoever the Citizen Journal guy was there, would practice every day. And maybe, maybe somebody from AP or UPI or whatever, but it was just two or three people went to practice every day. And after right. practice... You went into Woody's office and you sit there and you interviewed Woody in the office and he, and, you know, and he was, you know, which of course you get no time like that today with coaches. You get your, okay, we're going to have a, a Monday press thing. And then we're going to have 10 minutes or five or 10 minutes after a practice sometimes during a week is all you get. But this was like every day going to see Woody. Some days there'd be right. two or three of us. Some days it'd just be me. And Amazing. Woody would come in there sometimes and he would say, you know, here's an article in this magazine. I think you ought to read, Bob. I think it'd be good. You know, I think you get something out of this. Uh, you know, <laughs> which you would not, nobody would ever see this. Like, really, Woody Hayes was, you know, and it was like, he was just genuinely serious. Like, he was, it was like, he thought of himself as a teacher. And he would say, here, this is a U.S. News and World Report. And here's this article in here on journalism or something. And I think you'd like this or whatever, or something on history or whatever. Now, right. other days you'd go there and he'd say, what in the hell do you want? You know, I don't got time for that. You know, he would just be totally, <laughs> it was like, you know, one Sunday I was there when, when nobody was ever around. And he, he launches into this thing about how we've lynched Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm not, you know, 
I'm not going to debate Woody Hayes about Richard Nixon. I'm just like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, coach, whatever, you know. But, I mean, of course, Woody and, Woody and Nixon were buddies. So, you know, that's not that surprising. But his practices, you could never do this now. It's, you know, Woody would pound players' shoulder pads, and he would, you know, hit them in the helmet, and he'd cuss at his, his assistant coaches, you know. Like, what the heck? He fired you know? most of them, like, every day almost. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and you know. There was one day in the stadium, they had practice in the stadium, and they had left these field seats in the stadium, these, these fold-up chairs that were down on the, like on the track, you know, down at the bottom. Usually they took them out, but for some reason this week they didn't take them out. So all these fold-up chairs were down there by the, by the field. And I'm standing down on the, uh, behind these chairs with Tom Pastorius, my citizen journalist, you know, longtime writer, and we're watching practice. We got in there, and Pasty looks at these chairs. We're standing there, and a few of these players are sitting in these chairs. And Pasty <laughs> says, you know, I don't think the old man's going to like this. He's going <laughs> to like this. So sure enough, like, they're out there practicing, and there's, like, an interception or something. And I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing, because Woody was very calculated, I'm guessing that Woody was waiting for the right moment, you know, but there was like an interception and Woody like is out there fuming and he turns and he looks over there and he sees these guys sitting in these chairs and he comes over there with his arms flailing, screaming, ah! and these guys, these chairs are flying everywhere, you know, Woody just, you know, bowling pins. Yeah. So, so, you know, and like, of course me and pa uh, you know, Pasty and I are standing there like, Oh my God, I've got to get out. This is like unbelievable. I mean, the stories are all true. He, like he he would he would throw his watch down and stomp it, which of course they were like ten dollar watches or something that he that he bought. Oh, they were props. Um, and yet, and yet, you were able to talk to him like every day. That's just amazing when you think about it. Because again, um, you know, we don't have a chance to to access the coaches and athletes like that today. But in those days, you could just get into this long conversation with guys. Oh no! Well, he, he, I, I remember when I covered the Bengals and Sam Weiss was the coach. We we would end up talking about news of the day and stock market and, and something that's going on over in Iraq, and and they got to know you as people. And I think that helped because they got to trust you and know where you're coming from. You weren't just another face in the crowd. No, I'm, I'm really grateful that I covered all this stuff when I did. You covered Woody at the end, though, right? I mean, so you're in the last couple of years. He had the great 10-year war with uh, Bo Schembechler uh, at Michigan. Uh, tell me a little bit about the end of Woody's tenure and, and his relationship with Bo and Michigan. Well, Bo, Bo and Woody actually loved each other. That was the kind of the, you know, the, the dirty little secret that, that people didn't know. I mean, you know, and it, and it, you know, that, that came out more after they were both not coaching anymore, that they were, you know, that this yeah. was, this was really a, a, a close relationship. They obviously weren't, weren't calling each other and being buddies when they were, when they were competing against each other, but. But they um, really, really did love each really other. I mean, one of my favorite stories about the relationship is the day before Woody died, he had his driver drive him to Dayton, Ohio, just so he could introduce Bo at a luncheon. You know, and obviously yeah. Woody wasn't in good health. He died the next day. But he, he made a point to go all the way over from Columbus to Dayton just to introduce uh, his friend. And like you said, when they were coaching against each other, that couldn't come out. But, you, but it was there under the surface, right? It was there under the surface. And, 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 and I don't know, like, the, 
kind of the irascible nature of those guys is part of what made that that ten year war so so great is because there was just all of this this intrigue going on every you know i mean i mean the the uh you know woody knew there were spies over in the faucet center watching his practices thought he had michigan had spies up there in the in the building and <laughs> and uh you know they locked the michigan week they would you know lock all the the gates down you couldn't go to practice you know i, I couldn't go to practice during michigan in fact i i remember a week when northwestern was so bad and everybody was just pounding them and i remember right, they were they're awful. They were just awful. And it was like, you know, every week was just, you know, 56 to nothing, 48 to nothing, whatever. And, and I went over there, like, again, on a Sunday, they were playing Northwestern that week. And I said, you know, coach, I got to ask you about Northwestern. And Woody says, you know, I've, you know, my dad told me if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything. <laughs> it was like, and that was it. Like, it was kind of like, really? Well, he had his <laughs> principles, right? <laughs> yeah. So, well, the yeah. thing about Woody, obviously, is he had such tremendous success. He did so many great things. And unfortunately, his tenure ended the way it did against Clemson, where he ends up, you know, slugging Charlie Bauman, the Clemson player on the sideline. Have your thoughts changed about Woody over the years? Um, when you look back and you had that great experience of knowing him? No, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's like I, I see the um, the downsides of Woody. I see the temper and, you know, some of the stuff, you know, he, you know, I mean, he was, as I say, he couldn't couldn't get away with a lot of the stuff today that he did then. It was a different different era. But um, after he was out a couple years and he had this little office up there at OSU still. And one day I was in I was standing in the newsroom. Um, at the dispatch, like late afternoon, like, you know, probably, you know, probably, I hate to say this, but probably getting ready to go next door and have a beer with some reporters or whatever. <laughs> and I, I detect I, a theme here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and somebody in the newsroom there said, Bob, the phone's for you. It's coach Hayes. And it was kind of like coach Hayes. And I mean, I hadn't talked to him in two years or something. And I took the phone, and it was Woody, and he was at Riverside Hospital, I think, and and one of his former players was dying. And Woody, he, Woody called me because he he said, you know, this, I can't remember who it was, but so and so, great guy, played for me. He's dying. I just want to make sure that you know that you guys did a good good job for him is you know is he he's really you know a good human being and he you know he's got a wife and a family and and i and i was i was thinking like what like it was just like it was out of out of the blue but again it was like what he did these things for his former his former players loved him the stories of him um you know helping people get jobs or you know helping people going out of his way for guys who Maybe might have been a walk-on on his team for two years, never played, and they, and he heard the guys down and out, and he's, you know, yeah, goes out of his way yeah. for him. So I mean, it's just kind of like, but again, you have the other side of him, which you know is the legend of tearing up downs markers and snarling well, at people, and you know, you forget. I mean, you forget that they're you know like all of us, they're flawed, they're people, 
You know, we forget that. And I think sometimes they they take on the status. I I know, like, you were fortunate with, with Woody. I had an experience with Bo Schembechler that I'm always going to treasure. Um, you know, he was long, long after his – first of all, I covered his last game at the Rose Bowl um, for the Cincinnati Post. So that was a, a great night, young guy being in – at the Rose Bowl, watching Bo, um, you know, he lost the Rose Bowl, which he always did. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, at the end of his life, in that 2006 lead up to the number one versus number two Ohio State-Michigan game, I went up to Michigan's game before they played the Buckeyes and um, to cover and write about, you know, the Wolverines before the game. And at halftime, I ran into Gary Moeller who uh, later coached after, uh, right. after Bo did. But I, I knew Gary from when he coached at um, – at, he was an assistant coach with the Bengals, and I said, "Hey, hey, Mo, I hear, I hear Bo's here at the game," and Bo had just had a heart attack about two weeks before, and Gary said, uh, "You don't, you didn't hear from me, but he's down the hall on the on the third door, knocking on the door." So I went down and knocked on the door, and Bo was in there, and he was wearing a fedora, and his really smart jacket, and he waved me in, and so I go in there, and for the entire halftime, it was just Bo and I talking. And he was just really in a whimsical mood. He was reminiscing. He was talking about Woody. He was talking about the days. And, and I remember there's a, there's a punk rock band in Columbus called the Dead Shambakers. Yeah. And I even asked him about the Dead Shambakers. <laughs> and we just had this conversation, and it just felt like it was meant to be. Wrote a column about it, and Bo died like a week later. And I ended up wow. writing his obit a week later. Uh, and so when you have those type of moments and you had them every day with Woody, um, it just it just gives you a perspective so that when they become like almost like a cartoon character, um, you you had a perspective on Woody that was that was that you could understand the different layers to him, just like we all have different layers. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, yeah. it, it is. I, I believe me, when, even even as a young guy, when I was doing that, I knew this is going to be something I'm always going to remember. This isn't going to, you're going to cover a lot of events and a lot of games and a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes, but it was kind of like, okay, I, I was perceptive enough at that point to say, okay, this is, you know, this is not normal. This is like not a, just your routine coach who's, you know, doing whatever. I mean, he's, and he still is. I mean, he's still, he's still yeah. got that status even all these years later. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the checkered flag. Some of the bigger moments that you covered uh, involved baseball, and baseball was a big part of your career. Um, you know, you spent most of your career in Columbus, obviously, but you covered the Cincinnati Reds for a long time. And uh, and 
So because of that, you you covered a lot of World Series games as a baseball writer. Every paper would send its baseball writer to the World Series. So th- when I think about some of the most memorable baseball moments, a lot of them happened in the late 80s. So you you were there. You are there for uh, the Buckner game, the Gibson home run, the earthquake. Um, those are those are moments that I, I can only imagine what it was like to cover some of that. Tell me, let's start with Buckner. Game six of the 1986 World Series, the Red Sox are at the New York Mets, and they're ready to clinch their first championship in 6,000 years. What was it like in Shea Stadium that night? Well, it was crazy, but... You know, this was this was one of those this is one of those sports writer kind of World Series things where you're um, I don't remember where my seat was, but wherever my my real seat was, you know, I mean, what happens at the World Series, particularly in those old days, was that the, the press box isn't very big. So the press box, you know, it seats. 30 or 40 people or 50 people or something. And you have way more writers than that. So, so you're, right. they, they do all these auxiliary boxes, you know, somewhere, you know, and I don't remember where my auxiliary, I was in an auxiliary box there. I, oddly enough in at Fenway, I was in the main box in Fenway, but it wasn't in Shea stadium. So wherever I was, there wasn't a, there was no phones around me. And this, which was like, Okay, I'm on. I'm going to be on deadline. I got to be near a phone. So, so I, I camp in this press room behind the Mets press box. The uh, you know, so it's like a very cramped little room with a whole bunch of us in there with TVs. So you can't even see the field. You can't even see the field. Trying to watch. You're watching on TV. (laughs) I'm watching it on TV in this little cramped because because I had to file. I mean, I I probably sat and watched the first six innings from my seat, wherever that was. But when it got down to, okay, deadline's coming up and I got to start filing these stories and I had to have access to phones and there were phones in this press room. So, so this game, I'll never forget. I mean, you know, for a long time, I said this was like the worst night of my life because I, I had to rewrite (laughs) the, kept rewriting these stories and filing this. Like, I, I think I wrote this, this story, like this lead to this, like, four or five times and file on these phones in this little room. And you got somebody else, you know, you're, you're elbow to elbow with, you've been there. You know what it's like, you're elbow it's to nuts. elbow with these yeah, people. Yeah. And you know, people are yelling at each other and whatever, and you're trying to get this, and you know, you, that's my phone, you know, give me that phone back. So, so yeah, I mean, that was this, you know, iconic game. I mean, a memorable game, but you know, at the, at the dispatch, and I and this still exists. I understand. I, I you know, our old sports editor had had this. They had a proof of the page, which was Red Sox win the pennant, win the World Series, because it was like before. Oh yeah, they had, had to have it made. They had to have it made. Case, I had right? written For this deadline. story yeah. like in the ninth inning or whatever, and this was before you know Buckner became the goat and the whole thing. And they had this, and then of course, okay, tear that up. Except they saved that because it was like. So, you know, so I, I've always I've always told him, I said, you know, if you ever find that page, I want a copy of that page because it's got my story on it on right there. And it's saying the Red Sox won, which, of course, they didn't. <laughs> so you didn't even get to see it in person. You were back in this no, tiny no, little room. I was room in this tiny little room and I all hell's, all breaking, hell's loose. breaking loose. And you're and, you know, like every every time something like that happens, you know, it's like the whole, you know, 
if you're in a press room like that, the whole room erupts in expletives like, oh, shit, are you kidding me? You know, because it's like everybody's doing the same thing. You're trying to get this 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 story in and it's like, oh, my God, I just filed that, you know. So, yeah. So that was, you know, that was one that I didn't see. The, the, the Kirk Gibson home run I did see. So you were at Dodger Stadium in 1988. Yeah, it was Dodger Game Stadium. one of the World Series. And again... This time I had my, you know, I also had the story written. It's the ninth inning. I had to file this. And Kirk Gibson limps up there. And the swollen right knee. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. I told so you. What, I told, what were you thinking? Well, I, I had no what were you chance. thinking? You see him limping up He had, he had up no there. chance. And I thought, you know, my story was fine. It was like, this. nothing's going to happen here. And he limps up there and he looks like shit. Really, he looks like crap, you know, and and that was the only time I can ever remember that. I mean, he hit that home run to win that game. And which, of course, blew up my story, totally blew up my story on deadline. But I but I was so stunned by the way he looked by 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 this accomplishment. This guy who looks like a cripple just hit this game winning home run. I just kind of stood there. With my mouth open, like, oh, my God, I don't believe it. It wasn't like, oh, shit, look what happened. My story's blue. You know, it was the only time I can ever remember right. that happening where I, where I was more in awe of the moment than I was what happened to me. Because, you know, you, you and I have talked about this before. Like, you, you're, you're a writer on deadline. You're rooting for you. You're not rooting for the <laughs> teams. You're like, you know, this is – you know, people say, well, don't you, you know, you don't you don't. It's like, no, I've got to I've got to worry about what I'm doing. When I saw I was not there. But when I see replays of that, what the thing when the ball goes into right field, what I see is behind the stands out in right field. You distinctly can see the red lights on the back of cars of people who are leaving Dodger Stadium. <laughs> Look for that next time you see the replay. That's one of the most iconic moments in baseball history. What was it like when it happened? I was stunned. And I mean, I think like, I think, I think most of the fans were stunned. I think most of the people were stunned. And I, I don't think they would have been if Kirk Gibson hadn't looked like he was totally incapable of doing that. You know, I mean, the way he, the way he limped up there and the way he swung the bat and all that, it looked like, why did they send this guy, you know, why did, why would you, yeah. you know, yeah, could have picked anybody on the roster and sent them up there, and it would have been better than this. I said I covered a few World Series in my time. Lucky enough, one of my memories is I covered the World Series where the Red Sox did win it all and they beat the uh, the Cardinals. So it's historic. But one of my memories is, like you said, the auxiliary press box. You're sitting in the stands, so I was literally in right field. Surrounded by, you know, me and several dozen riders are out there sitting in regular seats with little, like, tables propped in front of us, surrounded by fans. And, again, Saturday night, you're writing all these different versions. And I just remember trying to write while being heckled by the fans. Because <laughs> the fans kept chanting, media sucks. Media I've been sucks. There. I've and, been there. <laughs> and Because they're... Because they were pissed that we had their seats and they were sitting there like chanting, well, we'll take your laptops, 
<laughs> so sometimes it's the memory of not actually what happened on the field. It's just behind the scenes that that kind of lingers in my own mind. But I wanted to kind of wrap up with some more baseball talk. You you started out in Hamilton, your hometown, which is near Cincinnati. Uh, you were a young guy in the 1970s. You actually got to cover some of the big red machine. Uh, you know, Sparky yep. Anderson, the manager, Bench, Morgan, Perez, Pete Rose. What was that like for a young guy to be around one of the most uh, historic baseball teams? In well, I gotta, I've got to be honest with you. For a while, I was, I mean, pretty starstruck. You know, I grew up as a big baseball fan. I you know, played baseball in high school. I loved baseball. And like, the, you know, the first time you're actually covering this and you're like on the field at the batting cage with all these stars and all this stuff. It's like, wow, this is like unbelievable in the dug. I'm in the dugout before the game and here, you know, Sparky Anderson or whatever. It's like pretty unbelievable. Um, you get over, I mean, you get over that fairly quickly because you're dealing with these guys. And so you don't think too much of that, but I'm not sure I, I knew it at the time, but it's obviously one of the great teams in baseball history. There's no, no quibbling about that at all. I mean, and the characters there, Pete Rose is, obviously a good example, but I was, I was still in college or maybe this is when I, I graduated in 73 and I worked at the Hamilton Ohio Journal. University. Yeah. They just told you to move on, right? They didn't give you a diploma. <laughs> <laughs> um, after the Reds lost to the Mets in the uh, playoffs in 73, and that was a series where P. Rose hit a home run and he shook his fist at the cr- the crowd had been jeering him and all that and he shook his fist at the crowd and all that. So I'm at the I'm at the Hamilton Journal then, but I've covered a lot of the games. So I I went down to Pete's house. Um, this is in maybe December or, or November or something um, to just kind of do some off season story. I called him up and he said, Yeah, come on down and. Um, yeah, and he I, lived in like Indian Hill, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. And and. Uh, but he, he weighs me in. We go in the house. We're in there for a few minutes. Haven't even started to do the interview or anything yet. And the phone rings. And Pete goes over and picks up the phone. And he says, I forgot. I forgot. God damn it, I forgot. To, so I, why don't you have a fit? Because I forgot to pick you up. He slams the phone down. <laughs> he said, Who's he talking Carolyn, to? Carolyn, his wife. His <laughs> yeah, wife? He says, that was Carolyn. I was supposed to pick her up and I forgot. So, so it's like, okay. So we start to do an interview and a little while later, here comes Carolyn with Petey. Petey is like his son, his son, Their son, who is maybe, I don't know, three or four, maybe, I don't know. You know, I'd have to look it up, but he was a little kid, a little tiny kid. And, you know, they have Carolyn and Pete have a little squabble and I'm talking to Pete and Petey, little Petey's there running around and Pete says, you know, Petey can hit him over the house. He can hit him over the house. And she, he's like, and I'm like, okay. And she goes, no, I pitched to him and he can hit him over that. And he says, can he, Carolyn? And she is like, goes, yeah, whatever. You know, she just like gives him the brush off. So Pete right. goes, come on, I'll show you. So it's like, okay. So, so he takes Pete. We go out in his yard. I mean, now we're talking late November, maybe early December. It's cold out there. It's like 30 degrees out there, maybe. And he turns on the lights <laughs> and it's dark, turns on the lights in the yard, and he stands little Petey over there and starts throwing him wiffle balls or whatever he was throwing him. And, <laughs> and the first two, Petey misses. 
And Pete goes, oh, this has never happened before. I don't know what's wrong. You know, he's just <laughs> he's just bristling at this. So Pete's getting upset at his kid. So he finally throws one and little Petey whacks it over the house. And Pete goes, see, I told you he could do it, you know, which was like pretty amazing at that, you know, like, oh, wow, you know. And so then we're, we're going back in the house. And I remember Pete saying he plays because he likes it. I'm not pushing him. Oh, yeah. He goes, and then he says, you know, when he goes to high school, he's going to go to Elder, not Western Hills, which Elder, of course, is the, <laughs> you know, on, on out in Price Hill the area out there. West, West Side is like the Catholic school that had all this athletic powerhouse or whatever. Sports, and Pete right. went to Western yeah. Hills and, you know, and so he was like, he wasn't pushing him, but this like four year old kid was going to go to Elder, you know? So, yeah, that's right. like, I thought that was pretty amazing. Please, because he likes it. Yeah. Well, I met Pete Layden, his own, you know, he was the manager of the Reds when I met Pete, and it was just when the scandal started, you know, to erupt, the betting scandal. And so you you knew him all those years. You, you know, you're at his house in the 70s. You covered all his games. You covered him as a manager. You know, Pete just loved to talk baseball. I mean, right? Every day you could just sit there and talk to Pete forever. That was, you know, I, I, I tell people, because they, cause they always say, what do you think of Pete Rose? And it's kind of like, well, I mean, he's not a, you know, in terms of his faults, he's not a great human being, obviously. He's done a lot of stuff and that hasn't been admirable. But I said, as a player and a manager, he was like the best. Like when he was the manager, you know, in those days I had to have, you know, you know, notes, a big notes package before every game. I had to go down there. You'd go down there. You get there three hours early or four hours early, spend all this time on the field in the manager's office. And the thing is, some days stuff happens and some days it doesn't. So the days when nothing was happening, you always knew, well, I just go in the manager's office. I, you know, Pete will fill this up. It doesn't always end well. And for Pete, it obviously did not end well. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. And he must now live with the consequences of those acts. And you were there every day. Did you think Pete bet on baseball? Were you surprised when that happened? There's not really a lot about Pete that surprised me. I mean, I'm sure I find it hard to believe that Pete would ever bet against his team. Like, I don't believe Pete was doing anything that he thought was wrong. I think Pete thought... I beat, but so what if I bet on my team? Like I'm betting on my team, you know, I mean, to win or whatever, mm-hmm. which I, I, I'm almost positive, Pete. I, I would definitely believe that Pete did that. And I, I think if you look at Pete's record since with the casinos and the whole, I mean, Pete's obviously made no secret about the fact that he likes to gamble. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's sad the way this is all kind of worked out. I mean, I think, if anybody, if anybody is a player deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, it would be Pete, you know. But like over the years, when you look at when you look at how it how it just kind of all kind of unraveled. Yeah, it's kind of Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah it's kind of just sad. It is sad. Just sad, you know. And because at that moment, it felt like Pete Rose had become a human being, you know, a person who made some really bad mistakes and now was going to pay a heavy price and his family was being affected and and um it was just sad it just humanized him and and i think if anything what we talked about today um the idea that woody hayes or bobby knight or pete rose you know these guys are humans and all these people are they have good things bad things they have insecurities confidence you know they're all over the map just like we are as people and i think 
that's what I think about when I think about these iconic people. Have you, to sum up, have you learned anything when you look back at your own career dealing with all these type of folks? Anything that you take with you now? Well, I, I think you summed it up pretty well because I think um, the difference between what we do, what we did, and 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 just fans is that we have had that opportunity to know these people and see these people for all their positives and negatives. When you see these guys and you talk to them, you know, fans don't have that opportunity. So, so they say, well, so-and-so is my favorite player and they don't really know, was he a good guy or is he a creep or what's his, you know, is he a humanitarian or is he, is he a liar or what's, you know, who is he? And, I think that has been for me the um, the best part of my career. Like I look back on people, and I got a book of old columns called Players, Teams, and Stadium Ghost. And I noticed after I picked these columns to put in this book that that a lot of the columns I picked were about players or or athletes or coaches that I thought were genuinely good guys that that was something that, well, this guy's a really, you know, yeah, he's a good coach, but he's a really good guy, you know? And I think, for example, it's a little bit off topic, but Lamar Hunt was the uh, owner of the crew. And um, Lamar Hunt, of course, owned the Kansas City Chiefs, a big oil family, really rich guy. Came up with the term Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Exactly. And he, he, that was his idea. And but, but he was just a genuinely nice guy, very down-to-earth guy. And it, it just struck me that this guy was fabulously wealthy, famous, rich, you know, and he was just a really down – you know, I'll give you an example. Like, like I wanted to interview him one day, and he was here to visit the crew and the Columbus crew in the, uh, the stadium one day. And I said, have you got a few minutes? And he said, you know, Bob, I don't. He said, I've got to get to the airport right now. But he said, if you want to ride in the car with me out to the airport, I'll, you know, talk to you on the way to the airport. And I said, okay. So the, the crew had had this guy to drive him to the airport. And he said, you know, this guy, Bob's going to come with us. And I sit in the back with Lamar, like for 20 minutes out to the airport and interviewed him in the backseat of this car. Now, like, if you're not a reporter, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal, but you and I both know that most of the people that you're trying to interview like that, they have an excuse not to be interviewed. They're going to say, Hey, sorry, <laughs> yeah. I got to go, you know? And Lamar was like, no, Hey, if, you know, I, I don't have time to do it here, but if you want to get in the car and ride with me to the airport, to me, that stuck with me as far as, well, this guy is a really good guy. He's not a, a phony and he's not, you know, he's not struck by his own, wealth and fame or whatever he's a down-to-earth guy and that's what i say that's with all these athletes that's the same thing that's what i say those are the things that i took with me like over the years people that um that i really liked because they were human beings and they were nice human beings they weren't just they weren't phony for the camera or there wasn't some secret agenda there that we didn't know about yeah i think those folks are the ones who knew what writers and media people were doing. We were the conduits to the fans, to the people who really cared and gave their heart and soul to the athlete or the coach or the team. And so they knew that by talking to us, what they really were doing was talking to the fans because that's what was most important. So um, this is, it's been a great way to wrap it up. Uh, Bob, I think the 
I think they flipped the lights on. I think the music has been stopped. Uh, barkeep. Barkeep, I think we better settle the tab here. Uh, we've gone on a little <laughs> while, but uh, it's been great to reminisce and the stories. And um, I treasure all the moments that we had together. I appreciate your having me, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media, drop us an email, and be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Sarah Wilgrub, and our audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.